Well, we return to our study of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. So turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And we come this morning to the close of the body of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. The last words that he pens just before he gives his final exhortations and greetings and the benediction. And as we come to the close of the body of this letter, we're confronted afresh with the pastoral heart of the Apostle Paul for this storm-tossed, conflict-laden flock that is the Corinthian church. And really, this entire epistle has been laden with that reality. The heart of Pastor Paul for his sheep has been on display for all to see. I've mentioned several times throughout our exposition of the letter that 2 Corinthians is often called the fourth pastoral epistle. Usually, that's a designation given to 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus because those letters contain Paul's instruction to his protégés as they seek to pastor the young churches of Ephesus and Crete. But 2 Corinthians is often called the fourth pastoral epistle because of how extensively Paul describes New Covenant gospel ministry and because of how he lays his heart wide open in his effort to woo the Corinthians away from the clutches of the false apostles and to woo them back to him and back to faithfulness to his gospel. In fact, Paul uses that very phrase in chapter 6, verses 11 to 13. He says, Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. Now in a like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. And that open heart is on full display throughout the letter. In chapter 1, verse 6, he tells them, if we're afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. My suffering is for you. Chapter 1, verse 14, he says he hopes that they'll understand that we are your reason to be proud as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. He says he glories in them and he prays that they will recognize that they ought to glory in him as well. In verse 23 of chapter 1, he tells them that when he tra changed his travel plans, it was to spare them that he didn't make an immediate return visit to Corinth. He, he was thinking of their feelings. He wasn't doing it for himself. In verse 24, he says he's a co-laborer alongside them for their joy. And then in the opening verses of chapter 2, he says he, he didn't want to have sorrow from those who ought to make him rejoice. And then he wrote his severe letter rebuking them for tolerating false teaching out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. He says, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. In chapter 3, verse 2, he says, he doesn't need letters of commendation from another church to them because you are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. And then in chapter 7, verse 2, he says, make room for us in your hearts. And then verse 3, I've said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. And in 7.7, 7, he rejoices when he hears of their longing and mourning and zeal for him as it is expressed in their repentance. And in verses 8 to 10, he speaks about how he regretted having to write the severe letter because he doesn't delight in causing them sorrow, though he is glad that their sorrow has led to repentance. 
And we see the same pastoral heart throughout chapters 8 and 9 as he stirs them up by the grace of God to contribute to the offering taken for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And then as we come to this final section of the letter, chapters 10 to 13, as he turns from addressing the repentant majority of the church to the unrepentant minority, as well as addressing the false apostles themselves, we see his pastoral heart here all the more, particularly in how dedicated he is to protecting the flock from wolves who would destroy them by damning doctrine. In chapter 11, verses 13 to 15, he unmasks these intruders as false apostles, deceitful workers, and servants of Satan who disguise themselves as angels of light, as apostles of Christ. Chapter 11 Verse 16, all the way through to chapter 12, verse 10, Paul does what he hates to do. We, we spent a lot of time on the realities of Paul's foolish boasting. Since the Corinthians had become so infatuated with the triumphalistic boasting of the false apostles, he says, well, I'll wear a fool's mask and do some boasting and hope that you'll be won back over by any means that I can. In chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, he speaks to his wayward spiritual children. He says that he's jealous for their spiritual purity like a father is for his own daughter. He says, for I'm jealous with you, for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And then in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 11, he speaks of the daily pressure of concern that's on him for all the churches. He says, who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? And then coming into chapter 12, verse 14, he explains that in all of his labors, he's not after their possessions, he's after their souls. He says, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. I want your heart. I don't want your money. I want you. And then in 1215, he says, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. And so Paul's pastoral heart has been on display throughout this entire letter. And as we've gone through, we've made observations about how our own ministry to the body of Christ ought to be guided and driven by the principles modeled for us in Paul's dealings with the Corinthians. These are some of the sermon titles for, from the last several years as we've worked through 2 Corinthians. We've spoken about the minister's guide to self-defense. We've spoken about the minister's love, marks of the minister's love, battling discouragement in ministry, the minister's motivation, the minister's boldness, keys to the minister's endurance, the minister's resurrection hope, the minister under attack, the minister's guide to conflict resolution, the minister's posture, the minister's warfare, the minister's jealousy. And just last week, we studied the minister in the midst of conflict. And we are the minister. That is all of us, not just the ones who stand behind the pulpits, not just the ones who do the counseling and lead the Bible studies, all of us as members of Christ, as partakers of the new covenant are called as ministers of the new covenant. And so we learn from Paul's life of ministry what our life of ministry is to be. Well, as Paul wraps up this letter, 
He's preparing the Corinthians for his upcoming visit. And he tells this obstinate minority of the church that they need to repent like the rest have. They need to put things in order before he gets there, because if they don't, he's going to exercise the apostolic authority that they've so longed to see by putting these unrepentant ones out of the church. He says in chapter 13, verse 2, I've previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and do all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. But as he comes to this closing paragraph, he makes his final appeal. And as he does, his pastoral heart comes out once again. So let's read our text this morning, 2 Corinthians 13, verses 5 to 10. Paul says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Now we pray to God that you do no wrong. Not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for, that you be made complete. For this reason I'm writing these things while absent, so that when present I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Paul has shown himself to be a faithful pastor throughout this entire ordeal with the Corinthians. And here in this text, his final appeal to them before his third visit, we find four more features of the faithful pastor's care for his people. These four characteristics of faithful pastoral care are a model for us in the church, even those of us who are not pastors, because we have been called into the ministry of serving our brothers and sisters here in the body of Christ. Well, that first feature of the pastor's care for his people is, number one, concern for their genuine salvation. Concern for their genuine salvation. And we see this in verses 5 and 6. Paul writes, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. So at the instigation of the false apostles, the Corinthians had been examining Paul's life and his writings to see if he stood the test as a genuine apostle of Christ. Paul said in verse 3 of this chapter, they were seeking proof of the Christ who speaks in him. And throughout the letter, Paul's argued that his conduct toward them has proven his apostolic genuineness. And if that's not been enough, he promises them that when he returns on his upcoming visit, they will have all the proof they can handle since he'll exercise his apostolic authority to discipline. But here in verses 5 and 6, Paul turns the tables on them. He says, you've been testing and examining me. Let me tell you something. You need to test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. You need to examine yourselves. And that is the proper emphasis. Paul not only repeats the word yourselves, but in both instances, he puts it in the emphatic position in the clause. 
You're looking for proof from me. You need to prove yourselves. You need to test the genuineness of your own salvation. You're the ones who are dallying with false teachers. You're the ones who are infatuated with foolish, worldly triumphalism. You're the ones, chapter 12, verse 20, who are trafficking in strife and jealousy and outbursts of anger and gossip and slander and arrogance. You're the ones, 1221, who are refusing to repent of your impurity, immorality, and sensuality. Dear Corinthians, examine yourselves. But as bleak as that picture is, Paul isn't calling on them to examine themselves because he thinks they'll fail the test. He's calling on them to examine themselves because despite all of this trouble, he is confident that they will pass the test. He asks them, or do you not recognize this about yourselves? that Jesus Christ is in you. He appeals to their own spiritual self-awareness, and he does so with confidence that if they come to their senses and they examine themselves carefully, they will recognize that Christ is indeed dwelling in their hearts through faith, as he says in Ephesians 3.17, that they have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer they who live, but it's Christ who lives in them, Galatians 2.20, and that they'll amend their ways repent of their sins, repudiate the false apostles, embrace Him, and thereby begin again to live consistently with the truth of the gospel. Now, of course, he doesn't know for certain that every individual in that obstinate minority is genuinely saved, and so he adds the caveat, unless indeed you do fail the test. But he believes the best that he can about this struggling flock, He still regards them as his spiritual children, and he won't give up hope until he has no other choice. And one of the reasons we're right to conclude that Paul is optimistic about the Corinthians passing the test is that his entire argument is that his passing the test as a genuine apostle is linked to their passing the test as genuine Christians. Look at verse 6. He says, but I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. So when they examine themselves to see whether they're genuinely in the faith, and when they do recognize that Jesus Christ is in them, that they're true believers indwelt by the Spirit of God, Paul says then he trusts that they'll realize that Christ is in him as well, that he is a genuine apostle. And why would the one lead to the other? Why would the Corinthians becoming assured of their salvation necessarily lead to their becoming assured of Paul's apostleship? Well, because it was through Paul's apostolic ministry that they heard the gospel at all, that they believed in Christ in the first place, that they received salvation. We've heard that argument several times from Paul as we've studied this letter. Back in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 and 2, Paul asks them, "'Am I not an apostle?' Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord?' If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. The very means, he says, by which you were rescued from sin and converted to Christ is that I brought the gospel to you and labored among you night and day for 18 months to establish this church. Other people can doubt my apostleship, fine, but your salvation is the very seal of my apostleship. The fact that you're saved is testimony to the power of God at work in my ministry. And then he says the same thing 
in 2 Corinthians 3, 1 to 3. He says, we don't need letters of commendation to you. You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men being manifested that you are a letter of Christ cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. He says, I don't need letters of paper and ink. You yourselves are living letters that commend the genuineness of my ministry. You're saved because of the gospel that I preach to you. And so one commentator explains, if the Corinthians, as a result of their self-examination, decide that they are true believers, then there is an unavoidable entailment. The man who led them to their first steps of faith and their initial experiences of grace cannot be quite as useless as some of them have been suggesting. And then Philip Hughes captures it simply when he writes, if they know Jesus Christ to be in themselves, then they know by simple logic that Christ is in the one who proclaimed Jesus Christ to them. So the Corinthians' genuine faith and Paul's genuine apostleship, in his mind, stand and fall together. And so because Paul wants them to recognize his genuineness, he expects them to fare well in their spiritual self-examination. And even though this call to self-examination is situated in the particular events of the Corinthian conflict, there is a genuine principle for us to benefit from here. And that is that the faithful pastor, or as the case may be for many of you who are not pastors, the faithful minister, the faithful servant of the body of Christ is characterized by concern for the genuine salvation of those to whom he ministers. And that must be the case, because if we care at all about the spiritual well-being of our brethren, we must be principally concerned with whether they're spiritually alive in the first place. There cannot be spiritual health and growth without spiritual life. And what this call for self-examination confirms is that there is such a thing as fake Christians. There is such a thing as false converts. There is such a thing as people who profess to believe in Christ, but who are not genuinely in Christ. Paul calls them false brethren in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six, They are those who, upon engaging in this honest self-examination, ought to conclude that they are not genuinely in the faith. Jesus speaks about such false brethren in Matthew 7, 21, where he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who calls Jesus Lord is going to be saved. He says in the next verse, many will say to me on that day, that day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? So here are people who have prophesied in the name of Christ. I've never done that. Here are people who have cast out demons in the name of Christ. I've never done that. Here are people who have performed miracles in the name of Christ. I've not done that either. And hint, neither have any of you. These people would have blended well at church, at fellowship group, at Bible study. And yet not a few, but many, he says, of these people 
will hear this chilling declaration from Christ in Matthew 7, 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Friends, there is such a thing as being self-deceived. There's such a thing as being assured of a salvation that you don't have. And that is the most miserable state to find yourself in, to be assured of a salvation that you don't have because you'll do nothing to lay hold of salvation since you think you've already got it. It's like having a terminal disease and not knowing it and thinking you've been cured from it. And so you do nothing to seek a remedy for it. And what winds up happening is you stand before Christ on the day of judgment, expecting to find the welcoming face of a familiar friend. But instead, you see Jesus look back at you, perplexed, as if to say, what are you doing expecting eternal life? And declaring then, I never knew you. I can't think of a more terrifying scenario than that. I can't think of a, a more scary passage of Scripture than that, a sadder state of affairs than to call yourself a Christian, to live outwardly as a Christian, and to meet Christ and be told to depart from Him. So what does that mean? It means that one of the most important pursuits of the Christian life is the pursuit of genuine assurance of salvation. We're called by this text to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. We're called in 2 Peter 1.10 to be all the more diligent to make certain about God's calling and choosing us. The Apostle John writes the entire epistle of 1 John outlining a series of tests we can take so that, he says, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So what are those tests? Because just as you can have an assurance of a salvation that doesn't exist, you can have a salvation without assurance. There's such a thing as security without assurance of that security, and there's such a thing as assurance without having genuine security. Both of those things need to be avoided. We need to be genuinely secure and assured of it. What are these tests? By what means do we look to gain a genuine, well-founded assurance of our salvation? Well, the answer to that question is worthy of books and books and sermon series upon sermon series. But the short answer is we are to look for evidences of God's saving and sanctifying grace at work in our lives. We're to look for evidences of God's grace. Realities in our lives that cannot be traced to our native efforts, but must signal the work of God in our hearts. We aren't to look to some past experience for assurance. 
You know, X number of years ago, I raised my hand at a Billy Graham crusade or at some a revival service. Uh, X number of years ago, I came forward to the, to the altar. Uh, s- several years ago, I prayed the sinner's prayer or, or I got baptized when I was a child or I had this emotional experience where I, you couldn't, it couldn't have been anything else. It was just this emotional encounter with God. None of those things are the proper grounds for our assurance. We are to look for present evidences of God's grace at work in our lives. Let me work through five of them with you just briefly. And they're all going to come from 1 John. So if you want to turn to 1 John, we're going to be reading several portions from there. First, what is our response to our own sinfulness? What's our response to our own sinfulness? Do we deny it? Do we rationalize it away? Well, yeah, of course, I'm sinful. Nobody's perfect. We're all human, right? We're sinful. Or we rationalize it away by by making excuses for it? Well, you see, the reason that that was the case is because of so-and-so and because of this situation and because of these circumstances, it was really abnormal. Do we blame others for it? You know, that's because that's how my parents treated me when I was growing up. That's because my Older siblings did this or that. That's because my family never paid any attention. That's because I had this experience in college. That's because whatever. Do we blame others for it? Or do we confess our sins? Do we say, yes, guilty, that's right, that's me, sinful? No excuses. And do we mourn over our sin? Not just, yes, so guilty, sinful, what of it? No, but a brokenheartedness, a mourning over our sin, a forsaking of sin, right? He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, Proverbs 28, 13, but he who confesses and forsakes them, he shall be blessed. And do we trust in Christ to forgive us of our sins based upon his sufficient sacrifice? We, we don't mourn in, over our sin only to, to stew and wallow in our sin, but we mourn over it, then we take the sin to Christ, the only ground of assurance, the only sufficient sacrifice for the payment of sin, and experience forgiveness. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says that if we say we have no sin, we're deceived. But if we confess our sins... Christ is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do we go to Christ with our sins or do we excuse our sins and live in them? Second, can we identify patterns of obedience in our lives? Not perfection, but as we say often, direction. Not perfection, but direction. Are our lives increasingly characterized by holiness? However slowly we may be progressing, are we progressing? What's our attitude toward the authority of Scripture and the commandments of Christ? 1 John 2, 3 says, By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I've come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in Him. 1 John 5 Three, says this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, then his commandments are not burdensome. 
Is obedience to Christ a delight? Even though we may mourn over how far we fall short, even though we may lament our backwardness and our indolence, is it in the bottom of our hearts that it's a joy to follow Christ, that we hear the commands of Scripture and though we realize those commands kill us, they but drive us to Christ and that we see in Him all the obedience that we need to render and that it's been rendered on our behalf and therefore there is a power in our souls, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us to, to obey in the power of that grace? Or are His commandments a burden to us? Is the, word, the law, is the, the law of God, the commandments of Christ, is that a yoke upon our backs that is not easy and light, contrary to what Christ has said of it? Third, what's the state of our heart toward the world? What's the state of our heart toward the world? 1 John 2, 15 and 16 says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Are we marked by a sinful infatuation with worldliness, with worldly speech, worldly thinking, worldly philosophies, worldly entertainment, worldly dress, 1 John 3.13 says, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. Friends, does the world hate you like it hated your master? Because like him, you testify of it that its deeds are evil? Or are you at home in the world? Because you don't testify of it that its deeds are evil. Are you seeking a, a lasting city here on earth? Or are we living for a better country, the heavenly city that's been prepared for us by God? Fourth, what do we think of the local church? What do we think of the local church? First John 3, 14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Chapter 4, verse 20 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, Whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. Are our lives marked by loving, devoted service to our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ? Or are we happier to come to church on Sunday, talk to a few people, hi, goodbye, and retreat into our isolated corners in our homes, unbothered by the needs of the saints, which might bring inconvenience and hardship to us? Do we delight in fellowship with other believers or do we look for excuses to avoid it? So our response to our own sinfulness, patterns of obedience, a state of our heart toward the world, what do we think of the local church? And fifth, what do we think of Christ? Do we believe in the Jesus that Scripture reveals and not the Jesus we might imagine 
in our own minds? Do we know him as the eternal son, virgin born, fully God, fully man, perfectly sinless, the only substitute for sinners who died and rose again and is seated at the right hand of the Father and coming again to reign? Is that the Jesus we confess? And is that the Jesus that we love? Do we love him in our heart of hearts? Have our affections, have they been transformed from the inside out, not only to hate sin, but to love the glory of Christ in sin's place? Do we delight to spend time with him, to learn of him, to speak of him, to meditate on him in prayer? John says in 1 John 1, 3, that he writes, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Do we delight in our fellowship and our communion with Christ? Do we trust in him alone for our righteousness and have communion with him as the one who pays all of our debt and provides all of our righteousness, our sole hope of salvation? And do we commune with him by knowing him as our, our pearl of great price? Do we treasure him as the great treasure hidden in a field? Do we, Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good? Is there something of a spiritual gust in our heart that moves from beyond an intellectualizing of truth to a, a savoring of glory? And as I ask those questions, I would put it directly to your consciences. Is that you? Which one are you? The one who loves the world, is at home in the world, or the ones who's hated by the world for your transformed life? Which one are you? The one who trusts and treasures Christ or the one who could take him or leave him? Which one are you? The one who scoffs at the commandments of Scripture or the one that says, it's my delights, my food, to do the will of him who sent me. And no matter which one you are, whether you're the unbeliever seeking to understand his own state before a holy God and despairing that you find yourself to be yet in your sins, or if you're the believer whose conscience has been afflicted by sin, seeking for assurance of a salvation that you do genuinely have, but because of disobedience, you've lost. The remedy is the same. To both of those sinners, I say, look to Christ. Find in him all of the righteousness that you lack. Find in him perfect, sufficient atonement for your sins. Whether you've never come to him before in your life and need now to bow the knee in repentance and enter through the narrow gate, or whether you do know him, but you've sinned away your assurance and you need to, to be uh, confronted and, and, and comforted rather again with your salvation, the answer is look to Christ. He is your perfectly sufficient righteousness. And whether you trust him for the first time today or whether you trust him for the millionth time today, trust him today. Set your faith upon the perfect merits of Christ. That's where salvation and security is. That is where assurance is. And friends, these are just some tests that we can administer as 
in pursuit of assurance of our salvation, we try to identify evidences of God's grace in our lives. But this is not just for us. As we serve one another in the body of Christ, the the faithful pastoral shepherding care that we've been called to must be marked by a concern for the genuine salvation of our brethren. And so there must be times when we call upon our professing brothers and sisters to examine themselves, especially if there are patterns of sin and if there's a lack of repentance. And we need to be willing to work through these tests with them. We need to be willing to get into their lives and help them assess their own spiritual condition. Not, you know, here's two verses, hey, take these two and call me in the morning. But let's work through this together. Tell me about the state of your heart. How is your soul? What are you being seduced by? What temptations are pressing in on you that you're finding difficult to resist? What truth about Christ has been sweet to you lately? What truths have you been meditating on the scriptures that have caused your soul to rejoice in him? When was the last time that's happened? There's so much more that can be said about that, but suffice it to say that the Apostle Paul was concerned for the genuine salvation of the people in the church to the point that he called upon them to put their profession of faith to the test. And if we're going to faithfully care for the fellow sheep that Christ has entrusted to us, we must be willing to do the same. There's a second feature then of faithful pastoral care that we see in this text, not only concern for their genuine salvation, but number two, prayer for their progressive sanctification. Prayer for their progressive sanctification. And we see this both in verse 7 and verse 9. Verse 7 says, Now we pray to God that you do no wrong. And verse 9, This we also pray for, that you be made complete. So twice in the span of these three verses, 2 Corinthians 13, 7 to 9, Paul makes mention of his prayers for the Corinthians, especially as they undertake this self-examination and prepare for Paul's visit. See, he's not just going to bark out orders and exhortations and warnings and threats of discipline and then forget about them till he gets there. No, he's going to warn them of impending discipline, but then he's going to devote himself to pray for their repentance. He's going to pray between the time of writing and the time that he gets there that the Spirit will work in their hearts and conform them to the image of Christ and take his instruction and work it into them. He prays, he says, that they would do no wrong. Wrong in this context would be to persist in their attachment to the false teaching of the false apostles and to refuse to repent of the sins Paul mentioned in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 12. To be made complete in verse 9 translates the word katartizo, which when used in medical context referred to the setting of a broken bone. Paul uses the term katartizo uh, in Galatians 6.1 when he says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore him. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And so it's got this idea of restoration, of putting back into place, of repairing what was broken and restoring what was lost. And again, in this context, it has to do with the fact that the Corinthians would reach a level of spiritual maturity manifested in their rejection of these false teachings with the the false apostles and their false gospel 
it would manifest in their repentance from immorality and the pursuit of righteousness. It would manifest in their embrace of Paul and their embrace of the gospel he preached. Paul prays for their sanctification. And this is all over in the New Testament. He does this for all of his churches. Just note these references, Philippians 1, 9, and 10. He says, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Colossians 1, 9 to 11, he says, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. In 1 Thessalonians 3.10, he says, Night and day we keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. And those would be verses to remember and pray for one another because the application that I draw from all of that is that we who would faithfully minister to our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, especially to those who are caught in a trespass and whom, are, whom we're urging to forsake sin, we need to pray for their sanctification as much as we preach, as much as we teach, and as much as we counsel and exhort. Prayer and the ministry of the Word was how the apostles summed up their understanding of ministry in Acts 6.4. And if we would be faithful under shepherds of Christ's flock, we must similarly understand prayer for our brethren to be at the top of our list of ministry priorities. And it's great, friends, to pray for the doctor's appointments. It's great to pray for the health issues. It's great to pray for the, the, the family members who are moving or who have particular needs. But this is talking about prayer for sanctification. This is talking about prayer for the, the grip on sin to become loosened. This is talking about prayer for grace to be multiplied in the progress of holiness, which means we've got to know each other's struggles and knowing them, commit to praying them away. Commit to praying for them. Commit to asking the Holy Spirit to, to, to drive them from our spirit, from our soul. How often it is that we spend hours talking with a brother or sister, trying to loosen their grip on sin and equip them for the fight of holiness. We give them passages to read. We give them questions to answer and homework to do. And then we forget about their struggle until minutes before our next meeting. Friends, we might as well plant seeds and never water them as to preach and counsel and instruct without prayer. As we seek to care for the flock, let us be devoted to prayer for their progressive sanctification. Let us pray that the Holy Spirit takes the word that we faithfully presented and cause it to take root in their hearts and to bear fruit in their lives. A third feature a faithful pastoral care comes in verses seven, uh, seven to nine. And that is number three, humility for the sake of their spiritual well-being. Humility for the sake of their spiritual well-being. Starting in verse seven, Paul writes, now we pray to God that you do no wrong, not that we ourselves may appear approved, 
but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for, that you be made complete. Now, after Paul had urged the Corinthians to examine themselves in verse five, verses 5 and 6, and specifically because he linked his own vindication to theirs, the Corinthians may have gotten the idea that he was praying for their successful self-examination only because of how it would, it would contribute to his vindication as a genuine apostle. So he corrects that misunderstanding here. His preeminent concern is for their spiritual well-being. If he's humiliated... It means nothing to him except for how it might contribute to their spiritual health. Now, his exact words are a little bit difficult to follow, so let me try to unpack this here. On the one hand, if the Corinthians heeded Paul's warnings and repented ahead of time, ahead of his visit, that would mean that they would have once again judged him to be a genuine apostle, an authentic minister of the true gospel of Christ. So to put that in the language of verse 7, it would mean that he would appear approved. He would have passed the test. On the other hand, if they repented ahead of time as he's exhorted them to, that would also mean that when he came for his third visit, he would have no occasion to exercise his apostolic authority by severely disciplining those who were unrepentant. The very thing that would serve as evidence to these people as his, of his ministerial genuineness, the ex exercise of apostolic power, that would be entirely unnecessary now since there's no sin to discipline. If he exercised church discipline on those who repented, he would be acting against the truth, verse 8 says. But he can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. Even if that makes him, end of verse 7, appear unapproved. But if that were the case, if he had no need to assert his authority and the result was that the false teachers once again accused him of being weighty in his letters and strong in his letters, but weak and unimpressive in his person, he says, I'm not bothered by it. In fact, I rejoice over it, verse 9, for we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. I'm ecstatic if you're spiritually strong enough for me to be weak around you. And what's remarkable to observe here is how disinterested Paul is in protecting his own reputation and how committed he is to achieving the Corinthians' greatest benefit, no matter the cost to himself. If he were a man driven by the flesh, he'd have been chomping at the bit to show up in Corinth and roll some heads. After the false apostles had basically called him a coward and a weakling and have led his spiritual children astray, it would have felt great to show up, display his apostolic power, blow the false apostles out of the water, and kick the Corinthian detractors out of the church. But he prayed that the Corinthians would be so obedient that he could show up and be a weakling. Carson comments, whatever the personal price... Paul's willing to pay it if only their conduct is right before God and man. Here is the heart of a true apostle, a Christian so steeped in radical discipleship and firm self-discipline that his every care is for the people he serves, not for his own reputation. He is no hireling, but a true under-shepherd, willing to be counted a failure, a sinner, even a counterfeit, if only the people he serves may be lifted up in their faith. 
Paul is the perfect antithesis to triumphalistic leadership. And then Pastor John writes, a true man of God is not concerned with building his reputation, padding the size of his congregation, or any other selfish pursuit. As it was with Paul, his consuming passion is the nurturing of his spiritual children to maturity. Like a loving father, Paul was more concerned with his children's obedience than his own reputation. And that's where the lesson is for us. The faithful pastor's care for his people is marked by a willingness to suffer shame and humiliation and disgrace if it serves to build up the people of God, if it serves to nurture their spiritual well-being. We ought to be the kind of people who care nothing for personal consequences so long as it means that the church looks more like Christ. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 6, 8? He says, I am commending myself in the ministry by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true. See, if we are maligned in the course of our ministry to the body, but our humiliation builds up the body, we, like Paul in verse 9, ought to rejoice when we're counted weak, but the people of God are strong. Well, we've seen so far that the faithful minister's pastoral care for his flock is marked by three features so far. First, by concern for their genuine salvation. Second, by prayer for their progressive sanctification. And third, by humility for the sake of their spiritual well-being. The fourth and final feature comes in verse 10, and that is, number four, the faithful minister is marked by correction for the sake of their edification. Correction for the sake of their edification. Let's look at verse 10. Paul says, For this reason I'm writing these things while absent, so that when present I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Now, this closing verse picks up the theme that was introduced in the opening verses of this section in chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. And there, Paul gave voice to the accusation that was being made against him. He says, Now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I, who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you and absent, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. So you hear the accusation. Paul is weak and timid in person. He's bold and he's mighty in his letters. And what's presented there in chapter 10, as it were, in a minor key, framed negatively as an accusation against Paul, here at the close of the letter is transposed into a major key framed as an expression of Paul's love and compassion for the church. Dear Corinthians, the reason I write so severely when I'm absent is so that repentance might be worked in you now. This way, when I come to you and I'm present with you, there'll be no thought of severity. There'll be no thought of discipline, but only the refreshing joy and peace and delight of the fellowship of righteousness. Friends, he says to them, friends, better a, a weighty letter than a weighty face-to-face -face confrontation. Let me write sharply from afar so that I won't have to act sharply when I'm with you. 
And this just brilliantly strikes a balance that's so necessary as we navigate through our service to our fellow believers. Paul will not shrink from the diligent exercise of his apostolic authority, even if it means bringing severe correction the next time that he sees the Corinthians. His tenderness and his compassion will not cause him to abdicate the responsibility that Christ has has given to him to be a means of sanctification in the lives of his people, even if that means confronting their sin. He recognizes that it is no true compassion. It is no genuine love that refuses to confront sin with biblical correction when such correction is given for the sake of their edification. The loving servant of Christ's flock is willing to endure all manner of conflict, all manner of discomfort for the sake of his brother's mortification of sin and joy in Jesus. But though Paul will not shrink from his duty to bring severe correction, he takes no perverse delight in doing so. He is eager to find another way. In no sense does Paul relish the controversy. He is not spoiling for a fight. The only reason he uses any severity at all in his letters is so that that severity would work grace and repentance in the hearts of his people, which results in his not needing to use severity when he's with them. He is a soldier ready for battle, but eager for peace. He will bring correction. He will bring it, even severe correction. But in verse 10, he says he will not do it to tear down. He will not do it to destroy. He'll only do it to edify. Because the authority which the Lord gave him, he gave him for building up and not for tearing down. And each one of us needs to strike this balance in our own lives and ministries. Because each of us tends to insist on one of those and neglect the other. On the one hand, some of you are so eager for peace that you're tempted to be cowards. You're tempted to shy away from any kind of conflict whatsoever. Oh, no, I I can't say that. She may never speak to me again. Or at the very least, if I do bring it up, it's going to be this long, drawn-out battle, and I know I'm going to be misunderstood. I don't want to come off as unloving or judgmental. Uh, Best to just leave it alone and keep the peace. The problem is that's not true peace. While you cower in silence, your sister continues in unrepentant sin. Her communion with Christ is hindered. The strength of her soul is sapped and her progress in maturity is stunted. Those of you tempted in this way need to recognize that the faithful servant of the flock of God is courageous enough to get over the fear of what people might say or do to you if you bring them biblical correction because their edification is more important than your ego because their progress and holiness is worth more than a false pasted smile phony peace on the other hand others of you are so ready for battle that you're tempted to be impatient and graceless you're a hammer in search of a nail You're just ready to crack that whip and overturn those tables and say, Jesus did it. (laughs) Hey, man, what is the matter with you? Get your act together. Don't you know that you're sinning? I mean, are you sure you're even a Christian? That's not edifying. That's tearing down. See, we must be bold. 
But our boldness must not consist in relishing the opportunity to run someone over. It must be a broken-hearted boldness that would much rather come to terms of peace, but will endure conflict if necessary. And you who struggle more on this side need to be on guard because your heart will deceive you into thinking that you're just a stalwart for righteousness. You're just a man or woman of conviction in the midst of a bunch of sissies when really you're just a hard person looking to beat up on others, which is more often than not so that you don't have to deal too intimately with the sin in your own life. Let us not be cowards and let us not be brutes. Let us be marked both by courage and by compassion. As we minister to one another in the body of Christ, as we get into each other's lives and labor alongside one another in, our, in, in conflict against sin and in our pursuit of holiness, let us strike the proper balance as modeled for us in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. By God's grace, let us be bold enough to bring correction but let us bring it only for the sake of the edification of the body. And so we come to the end of the body of 2 Corinthians. We're not done yet, still four verses to go, but that's not for today. But as we faithfully carry out the ministry to which we've been called, as we serve our brethren in the family of God, may Paul's ministry be the model for our ministry. May our pastoral care be marked by concern for one another's genuine salvation, by prayer for one another's progressive sanctification, by humility for the sake of one another's spiritual well-being, and by correction for the sake of one another's edification. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word, how, how limitless it is and how, how it speaks to us out of its treasures. We pray that we would devote our minds to it and our hearts to it as well. We, we ask for your grace in bringing this about in our lives and in giving us the, the power to obey what we've heard, what we've been charged to do. And Father, I think about the, the exhortation to examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith. And I pray that if there are any laboring under the pains of the conviction of sin, that you would comfort them this morning with the power of Christ's righteousness, that they would, you would turn their heart to trust in him for all the, the acceptance before you that could be imagined and that they would find comfort and rest and consolation and, and assurance in uh, faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.